0: And welcome to episode 8 of SCP-3, our third season of podcasts. This week, Benjamin takes the reins on an interview. He speaks to three of the people behind Rchain. chain our chain is a permanent storage system first designed for internet archiving. Under that light, it would make data impossible to be removed or amended. Obviously, this has many implications beyond the internet, such as providing permanent storage for a project like the human genome. As you can probably tell, this is an extremely technical episode that at times delves deep into certain areas of computer science. As such, make sure to visit secretcave.co/rchain for some better context and background than I can provide. Early next week, I'll be releasing a bonus episode with Reese from Golder Looking Chain a podcast with a polar opposite tone to this one. Until then, I'll leave things with Benjamin. Hi. Uh,
1: hello. Hi, Ben. Ah, all of you.
2: Yeah, yeah all of we've us. We've got all three of us. So I'm John, who we've, uh, well, we've been speaking previously, uh, and this is Will and, Other this way, is Sam. Will and Sam, sorry, the I'm co founders is Will.
1: All right, great to speak to you all. Yeah, likewise. Yeah,
3: absolutely.
1: Mm. So, how's it all going for you on development? Great. Yeah, well, more than
3: we're, great. We're so far ahead of the schedule. It's. Uh,
4: yeah, well, we're it's, we're it's, six weeks ahead of our schedule at the moment. So we think we're going to be launching our um, private test network on Monday, hopefully. When it was supposed to be the end of December, so we're pretty yeah, pretty excited about Excellent. that. It's going well.
1: Yeah, I've seen that you've been. You know, I don't know how it works usually, but I see in Discord you've been getting quite a bit of pressure from backers.
3: Uh, yeah, mm.
1: I didn't really know about that kind of thing because I, I haven't been in like any Slack or Discord groups of any like cryptocurrency things. But is that normal? Is that to be expected for people to be like on your back about I the? It's it to be expected.
3: Yeah, here. we made like we could see why people might have uh, been upset. And
4: well, it's we, yeah. so we
3: were changing the name of the
4: uh, the token in the system.
3: Uh, there's bound to be some people who don't don't quite get it.
4: Yeah, that's you know with change like this, it's fairly typical, I would think. And, and also we've received a lot of positive feedback about the name change, but in more private channels. Well, in more private like channels in, and more
3: quietly, you don't have people going yeah, like, a, this really, is the best yeah. thing ever, guys, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Right, right. I actually wanted to give a bit of context, but I'd probably better if you explain what our chain is, so for the purposes of this, since it's going to be audio interview.
4: So our chain is essentially a decentralized permanent storage system at its core, and on top of that, we're building a uh, an internet archive. This is really the base of what mm. we're doing, uh, which will be open and available to people at all times. and our And our core mission is really to put, well, essentially human history, on this uh, blockchain-like data structure, and allow people to access it for
3: decades or, or potentially even centuries to come. The really important thing about our chain is that you can shard the chain. Mm-hmm. Unlike Bitcoin, not everybody needs to store the whole chain. You can just store as much or as little of a chain as you need, as you want to do. The advantage of storing more of a chain is that you get more of
1: the mining rewards. Precisely. Right, that's the yeah. block weave part of it, right? Yes.
4: yes, absolutely. So you get all of the uh, benefits of blockchain-based um, consensus, but you can actually store large um yeah large files and documents on it which is really the key innovation. Mm-hmm. It's it's worth- on, a, on a blockchain everybody has to replicate all of the data in order to take part, but here you can you can shard it out across. And it's worth
2: mentioning that the mining rewards are such that you're incentivized to uh yeah. to <clears throat> hold on to rare data Absolutely. so that data doesn't get lost.
1: Right. Yeah. Interesting. Sorry, yeah on. yeah because I assume that for bitcoin to be validated the, the entire all of the blocks beneath it need to be validated as well but for this one it's uh it's i don't quite understand how block we've worked to be honest like technically but i assume it just means that that it gets distributed to somebody who hasn't got that
4: well the verification happens uh i suppose at all times in the system it's a uh and it and it Inst- so, a blockchain just verifies the next block in the system each time mm-hmm. when it's created. And then new members uh, yeah, re verify the entire chain each time. But with a block weave, we re verify old parts of the chain as a, as a core, well, as a network. It's a core mechanic of yeah, the network. As works. it moves. Um, yeah. yeah, as the number of blocks increases.
1: Is that specifically for archiving? Is that the kind of thing that works specifically well for archiving information?
4: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So this is uh, So we wanted to build a decentralized internet archive. And we wanted it to scale. And we were essentially pushed down this route, I suppose, by the constraints.
3: Yeah, we were um, we were so worried at the start how are we gonna get this to mm, to, scale like, to scale to, to yeah. proper internet sizes just because we, we couldn't do it with a block weave. So oh, with a blockchain. So blockchain, yes,
4: we can do it with a block
3: weave, that's, what, that's the, rather the point. Yeah, but... and that was that was how we ended up coming up,
4: coming around to the block hmm. weave idea.
1: And the initial concept for our chain, did that come from some worry about how things are done at the moment? Sam Absolutely. has a really
4: inspiring story as well, he was on top of a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I was on a mountain, yeah. I was thinking about, uh, to be honest, propaganda, and the way that information on the internet at the moment is, um, it's absorbed... When it's not necessarily in its final state. So, for example, if you go to the New York Times website and you and you read a few articles, there's a reasonable likelihood that uh, those articles will change and evolve over time. And it disturbed me a little bit that uh, there was no permanent logging of that. You couldn't go back and see what it said originally because people don't people don't make their uh, sort of understanding of the world from the final version. Mm-hmm. They do it from the live reported version. And if that can get deleted, then you actually end up with this sort of unverifiable chain of information in the world, Mm -hmm. which we thought was, uh, yeah, not so great. And then also, you think about the way that uh, Russian propaganda campaigns are going on in Ukraine, for example, Mm -hmm. they'll spread a lot of information that's both uh, pro an idea and against an idea, causing confusion. Mm. And then delete that information.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So after the fact, it becomes impossible to delineate who thought what when. Yeah, we're trying to make it so that, that history essentially can't be altered after the fact. You can at least go back and see how it was initially reported.
1: And with something like chain it really can't be altered as well because it's decentralized. Absolutely.
3: It is theoretically possible, but in t- practically you would need you would need more money than a nation state has uh, to
1: do it. Anyway. Right, but... yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. So it's still open to 51% attacks, say.
1: Well, do you think that an archive could be manipulable uh, or manipulatable in, like, say, the US government, say you've got Internet Archive, like archive.org? Do you think that that's under threat?
4: It's hard to tell right now. It, it certainly could be. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the fact is that it's vulnerable in the same way that any non... Uh, any centralised... Uh, system is vulnerable. Nine months ago, was it? There was a yeah. fire at the Internet Archive, uh, where they lost some data. It wasn't... Uh, I think it was stuff that was going to be archived. It hadn't yet been added to the archive. The Usenet archives so. as well. About 10 years
2: ago, they lost about, mm. I don't know, 10, 15 years worth of uh, Usenet archives. Oh, that is mm. mental.
1: It's like uh, the fact that a fire actually destroyed that data It's like some Library of Alexandria <laughs> stuff going on. Oh,
4: We really think that that archives should be decentralised. It it just is the right way to approach the problem, I would say. Mm
1: -hmm. For trustworthiness over the, you know...
4: Yeah, absolutely. For trustworthiness as well as just just data reliability. Mm -hmm. No single point of failure. No single point of failure, precisely, yeah. No fires. (laughs) Or rather, if there's a fire, it really doesn't matter. Right, because everybody else
1: has the data too, theoretically.
3: Yeah, yeah. Or in our case, enough of the people have the data to it. precisely. There's enough redundancy.
1: So there are. There's quite a bit of political motivation behind actually in there, because it seems like it is. Usually, things related to things related to archiving and transparency and that kind of movement seem to me. I noticed that there was a little bit of a hint at that in the white paper for the gallery, uh, gallery exhibit. Well, it's interesting. We. <laughs>
4: We wouldn't necessarily have thought that internet freedom would be a particularly politicised <laughs> issue, say, ten years ago. No. Uh, it's simply permanent data storage. That's what we're offering at the core of it.
1: Yeah, I suppose it doesn't sound ever so political like that. It, I just got a political feeling <laughs> off of the kind of use, uses that it's for. We,
4: we came up with the decentralized internet archive first and then we built the algorithm that would allow us to do that and then we realized we'd essentially invented data what, what, permanence. What, Yeah,
3: why, why, do you, why limit it to the internet archive Precisely. so many Precisely. more
4: possibilities so it, it certainly did start from I would say a political concern mm-hmm. about the direction of things really And you bring up the genesis event as mm. well mm. we've only got a small
2: amount of the artwork and the content that's going to go in that but uh, the artists I think have very much pulled up uh, the kind of political notions that are involved mm, in this. Definitely. Yeah, uh, yeah I,
4: so yeah. The, there is obviously a sense of that,
3: but mm. it's. But I, I yeah. think it's broader, perhaps.
4: Yes, it's not the sole sort of driving
3: yeah. force. Like our, our chain is more than just a, a political thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, especially if you get down into the fact that it's like a it solves the data storage problem, as you said, then it kind of just becomes a exactly. general use thing. What other kind of applications have you have you at least theorized or tested?
4: Ooh. Well, so there's, at a basic level, you just use it for personal archiving. There's a, you know, we're, we're planning on building a client that just sits on your desktop, you drag a file onto it to get stored on the R chain, you can get it off later. Dropbox, but permanent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Dropbox, permanent, decentralized. And you only pay for what you use, and you only pay once.
1: Okay. One one file upload costs a certain amount of money.
4: Yes, precisely. It's decided by miners, so... Yeah, there's a decentralized... Uh, Market system for storage. So yeah. Does
1: that mean that there is a that there is a, a limitation on the amount of space that could be on on the R chain, or is that just the um, limitation? Basically, is the computer space of I all guess. the users a
4: soft limit? Yeah, that yeah, precisely. Yeah, uh, but. As more people use it, there's a higher incentive for people to take part in the mining, so the available storage pool increases, and so does the redundancy. I suppose you're limited by Moore's law more than anything else. Yeah, yeah, here.
3: yeah. Well, also, like suddenly, you imagine suddenly the chain fills up all of its storage space, uh, and you, you add, you're the you're the one with another four terabyte drive to add to it. You can really charge a premium on that four terabyte. It's mm-hmm. so a real it's strong just, incentive to keep the keep the storage space growing. Mm. Yeah.
1: Are you planning on uh, building a spider? So at the moment,
4: people um, will archive of their own accord. So they, this is an interesting web page. I think that this might be valuable information to have in the future. So I'll press the button. It cost me a very, very small amount of money. But we are also looking at these things we call um, archiving groups. So people would group together and say, OK, I'm really interested in this special interest topic. Mm-hmm. Um, we all throw in a little bit of money, really not very much and then you can run a little system that goes around archiving web pages that you like. Um, yeah, every so often, once in every period. Right,
1: so. yeah, that that seems like a, a great application for it because the thing I was worried about is that it's kind of, while it is, while it can do what it does, I mean, on a kind of click-by-click, save this page basis, if it, mm-hmm. if it feels like it would be great with collections and things like that.
4: Yeah, absolutely, yeah, we really think the cooperative um, Archiving will become one of the main uses, at least of the Internet Archive.
1: Is there going to be a front end for it?
4: Yes, there. There'll be a web extension. In fact, I'm uh, not really sure if you can see David. Yeah. Uh, David's the... behind us here, working on it right now. Uh-huh. Um, hmm. <laughs> but yeah, there, there's a web extension uh, that you just load into Chrome or Firefox. We we might be supporting Safari later. It's, it's a little more difficult, right? Uh, yeah, it's a little more difficult. But in the early release, just uh, Chrome and Firefox. You can, um, you know, access your tokens, you can add a page to be archived, and also you can view archived pages just by going to web addresses that are, you know, embedded in the usual way. They would just be chain colon stroke stroke, and then the name of the thing you want to get to. Mm -hmm. So you could, like, write those in, or you could even submit them
3: on Reddit, say.
4: Mm.
1: Right, right.
3: And the other nice thing is uh, the r code is very modular, so if you mm. don't like Damon's web, uh, web extension or you want to do some like, power user stuff where you want to archive the whole BBC News website every day or something, mm-hmm. you can just write your own code to do it.
1: Ah, so something could very easily be built that basically constantly pushes data to R-Chain. Oh, 100% absolutely. Yeah. We have
4: this um, system of what we call r apps that are essentially just that. They are nodes that sit in the network just like other nodes. And they can either listen and uh, yeah, just slowly be fed all the information that's going through the network, which is interesting for some other reasons. We might get onto later. Yeah. Or they can just use it for data storage themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. I had a look. Um, yeah. I had a look at some kind of solution. I think that Mastodon was doing something similar, but it didn't seem like it really got off the ground. Um, and that they were planning on doing some kind of blockchain tech in with that, but it didn't didn't get anywhere. But like this actually sounds like the first one that I've heard of that could do it then.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's only one of the hundreds of uses that you can mm, you can do. Absolutely. For example, so when we were setting up the company, we had to uh, get employers' liability insurance here in the UK, mm-hmm. and you have to you have to store those documents for forty years. And which, if you lose them, and if you lose them, you can be fined a pretty serious oh, right, amount of money. Right. It, you know, it, it seems incredible to me that nobody's come up with this solution before to that problem. You, you, decent. It's really that permanent storage is actually quite easy at a humanity scale
1: mm-hmm.
4: but at an individual scale for small companies it is basically impossible you know you can you can replicate the data in your safe at the work office you can replicate some of the data at home, but over a forty year period the likelihood that you'll lose that data is actually pretty high even raid is physically centralized yeah
3: mm.
4: whereas when you when you have um you know, a network with even a few thousand users on it. There's really no... <laughs> it's it's much, much more difficult for
3: any of that data to get lost. Something to quickly go as well. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, the HTTP stuff, but uh, the HTTP endpoint that Sam was talking about means that the applications can be written in any language. Mm. You don't have to stick with this confer- confusing Erlang <laughs> business. You can literally go and do it in Python, you can go to it in Java if you wanted to, you could do pretty much anything. Because of this nice say yeah, We are point. looking at
2: writing a Python library as well. Though. Yeah, well,
3: we'll eventually, I hope, come up with libraries that
4: just abstract away the HTTP interface in most languages. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they'll, they'll just be going around making the HTTP calls in the back end and you just say, make transaction.
1: Yep.
4: Mm-hmm. It's, uh, much.
1: Is, is Erlang a point of contention? <laughs> No. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no, no. Sam is an excellent Erlang
3: programmer, and I'm not. That's the only mm. one intention. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's allowed us
4: to build a lot of um mm, mm. It, a really excellent system very very quickly. Uh, the danger though is having it as the only system with which customers can interact with. Uh, I see. Yeah. So that's what we're attempting to it's, avoid. It's perfect yeah. for this project. It's perfect but for this project. It's it's not a wide. lot of people yeah. use it. It's that's precisely yeah. It's perfect for this project, but not many people know it. So yeah, we've got to <laughs> pro- wo- sorry, uh, broaden our support, which we've, yeah, we've done already. So
1: what? What? What is it about Erlang oh. that makes it so makes it so good for this?
4: Uh, it's the inbuilt um, support for concurrency. Or, or massive concurrency. Mm. So we can run 10,000, 20,000 node networks inside a single machine using Erlang mm-hmm. for testing purposes. And that allows us to surface bugs that would, you know, they're one in a one in 10, mm. 20 million um, iteration mm-hmm. bugs that you just wouldn't be able to pick up using the systems we've seen other cryptocurrency yeah, products like, using, yeah. which is basically where you, you start three nodes on one machine, and then you sort of hope you come across the bugs we're, we've got this uh,
2: Novans blog post written about it, mm. and uh, how Erlang has been essential in, in running these huge scale simulations to find sure uh, one in a million bugs. It
4: would be so annoying to even see or something. It'd, it'd, oh yeah, yeah, it'd yeah. be impossible it, to leave. It It right? wouldn't be impossible. <laughs> Just very, very time consuming. <laughs> and we also have this other system whereby. So once we've located these bugs that occur at very large scale, yeah, it's really been uh,
3: extremely wouldn't helpful. Would have been able to do it this quickly without it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So do you feel like the lack of testing that other cryptocurrencies have been through makes them less safe?
4: I it's think by the time they, they get to launch, most, most of the time they've dealt with the problems, but it takes yeah. an awful lot longer to get to launch. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're looking at
2: formally verifying parts of it mm-hmm. as well.
1: Yeah. I don't know, is
2: the um, Ethereum VM formally verified? They about so I don't I know was if we have a paper that looked at a subset of it. Very oh, okay. cool. But it would be most if, if we got some of the core algorithms verified as well. Really the block. That would be yeah, the, the block we verified. That would be uh, that would ensure safety and uh, validity. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that would be more or less unique among uh, this kind of project.
1: Mm. Ah, so the rest aren't actually verified, or the majority. Not, not mechanically
2: or formally mm-hmm. verified, mathematically.
1: Yeah, right. Interesting. Yeah, I was reading this big PR storm about, like, this wallet that was basically, like, an open-source wallet, but it kind of leaked leaked everyone's addresses in plain text, and it was people, like, calling it yeah. formal, formal verification. <coughs> people seem to get very up in arms about formal verification.
4: Mm. It's an interesting... It's actually a very... I don't know if your background is in computer science, but it's a it's a very contentious topic because mm-hmm. some people think you know it's the only way to write programs that yeah. that actually function correctly. Other <laughs> people think this <laughs> is a
3: waste of my time. It just it works think, already. Yeah, I don't need to do any of so this. So I've this. was my PhD. Yeah.
4: So. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on,
1: we um, on verification.
3: Yeah. Ah.
4: So John and I were both in the same research group doing PhDs, so we saw quite a few interesting debates about <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the merits or demerits of that approach. But essentially the demerit is that uh, it takes a lot of time. Mm. The merit is that what you get out the other end is, is truly verified. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you could also argue it from another point of view, although this is far off topic. If you don't um, verify the CPU on which any of the code is running, then having formally verified code itself is perhaps not that useful.
1: Yeah, actually sounds subjective and also I'm totally happy going off topic it's it's uh <laughs> in fact it's something that I hope happens during interviews because it's uh, always makes for some some interesting edge kind of conversations
4: mm mm-hmm. yeah yeah certainly
1: can you see our chain being abused in any way we have
3: some ideas about this but mm.
1: well so essentially in our system the
4: miners are the gatekeepers Mm. The miners are the people that decide what gets up, what gets onto the system, what's served from the system, really how all of it works. So we have a system whereby miners can optionally use blacklists mm. for content because there's really no other way of working. It. You can't force a miner to... Uh, well, you can't force them to go download
3: a website just to verify it, for example. It right, precisely. It wouldn't be fair. They might, at the very least, regardless of whether they like the content or not, they might want to to spend the bandwidth. Yeah, so we're not going to provide blacklists
4: or anything like that, but we are going to support miners. Uh, We're going to provide the functionality for miners to use them themselves.
1: And since you have to pay a bit of money to put something there in the first place, then I guess nobody's going to be spamming it.
3: Yeah, well, certainly yeah, not, yeah. I'm, imagine you're like a naughty drug dealer or something, and you put, I'm selling some drugs on our chain, and then. Yeah, that
4: would be the worst It'd be the worst idea
3: in the world. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, the police come a- knocking and knock in, and you're like, they say, Did you did you sell these drugs? And you'd be like, No. And they're like, Right here, signed by your private key, never <laughs> yeah. going away. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah it's so a we think in idea.
4: that regard, there's. Um... Well, As we a... really think it's like the internet. Some people oh. are going to try and use it for bad things. Some people are going to try and use it for good things. It's a it's a
1: tool. Yeah, but whenever something picks up popularity, it's always either the need for machine kind of uh, filtering or human filtering. You know, these people that are employed to watch YouTube videos all day and they've got to, like, go through this sick shit.
2: Mm. Well, I think next,
1: next week we'll
2: have... Uh, at least a blog post describing the filtering system, or one of the solutions
4: to filtering. Well, it's really uh, just this blacklist discussed. system I've just described. But the critical thing about that is that because all the blocks, sorry, because all the nodes have to come to consensus about blocks. If you believe that 51% of the nodes are going to block a certain type of content, then it's not in your best interest as a miner to mine that. Mm-hmm. And so there's a self-regulating element to it.
1: Aha, uh-huh, interesting. Really- so the, the the block weave also has kind of like a filtering effect. If, uh... It's like financially
3: incentivized group agreement almost. Yeah,
4: financially incentivized group consensus on what content should or should not be allowed onto mm-hmm. the system, yeah. And there's also uh, this question of searching. So, you know, information gets out onto the internet. Typically when people want information removed from the internet, on a personal level, not on a political level, Uh, They just go and they ask, you know, Google and the likes, please, or on Facebook, please remove this. Mm -hmm. And typically what actually happens there is they just remove the links to it. So in our system, there has to be uh, search nodes that can, um, yeah, find the data for you in the network. And and we think that another way that you can tackle this problem for personal issues potentially is just by approaching the search nodes and saying, well, look, this is uh, my personal information. Please don't serve it to anyone. Which has the same, uh, yeah, exactly the same effect as Google. Basically, mm-hmm. it's an analogous system.
1: So I also wanted to ask a bit more about this uh, exhibition that you've got. You've said Genesis. It's mm-hmm. called final title.
3: Yeah. Mm. Yeah, London's been the one organising most of it. To throw you out, to throw you under the bus. Uh, yeah. No.
2: Uh, yeah, Genesis will be the name of the event, stylized in all caps. Uh, as you've probably seen on Twitter, we're starting to sort of slowly drip feed uh -hmm. content that we've got from the artists at the moment and we're hoping to kind of build hype over time we've this close to sorting out a venue it's now going to be in london and not in canterbury Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a uh, a very nice it's a really nice
4: venue venue. yes yeah. But the the, the critical thing we're trying to do with the art exhibition is really draw attention to the uh the internet freedom problems that the art chain attempts Mm -hmm. to solve Mm. like this this making the Orwellian memory hole impossible. Comes from a, core, a, a um, philosophical rather than a technological mm, standpoint. Angle. Yeah, yeah. And we're really excited about it. using it to, you know, get some national media attention, international mm. media attention, if we can really build up some uh, interest in the project and the, the core goals of the project too.
1: Hmm. Uh, whereabouts did you get all of, the, all of the art from in there?
4: So, um, I'm
2: very close friends with a, um, a poet who I've known for quite a while, and he's very embedded in the sort of south of London art scene, and I, I've also known this artist for some time, so the links have come through me, uh, but I know these people very well, and I know the kind of art that they can produce, mm. and I thought they'd be perfect for an event like this. They work very closely together, and especially the illustrator. Uh, John Speed has worked for some very big names and is quite established. And I just thought they'd be perfect for the... Uh, and they really seem to have taken, taken to the concept like this. And, yeah, yeah especially in terms of the proposal that we've had from them, they've really understood where we're trying to go with it. Uh, and so they, they they seemed ideal. And they sent through some, some art at the same time. we came to the consensus that they were the right men for the job.
1: Yeah, as soon as I saw that, I thought, "Well, this is really grasped the you know this is really grasped the philosophical overtones of Rchain.
4: Yeah, yeah, we were really. Uh, mm. I was quite quite impressed mm. when we first saw it. It was good.
1: So that's one of your one of your plans for press in the future.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: What else have you yeah. got lined up?
4: So we're also running um, what we call the Rchain App Competition. Um, so we have a an investment pool of $10,000 as well as uh, 250000 R, the tokens, um, essentially for groups that produce applications that run on the R chain. So we're really trying to get people involved uh, yeah, with the app development side of things, building an ecosystem of uh, applications running on the network. And the idea there is, um, yeah, people can get involved. We'll help them uh, get up to speed with the development side of things, help them with the interface and so on. Um but yeah the, the winning the winning group or groups from that will offer a ten thousand dollar investment for six percent of their company and they'll have a direct line to us to uh yeah mm-hmm. get get help building a prototype out into a real system that's running on the network. Because one of the things we want to push as well as uh you know, the internet archive and the personal backup stuff is uh is really having an ecosystem of programs running on top of it. As far as we we see it, it's a permanent network, like the internet, a permanent, we say Mm -hmm. sometimes. And and it's critical to get an ecosystem growing there.
1: Do you have any idea of what's coming there? Like what kind of things people are working on?
4: Yeah, we've spoken to some people that are really interested in uh, instant messengers on the system or email clients. I mean, the thing from our point of view is there are just so many uses for this mm. technology that we couldn't, we couldn't possibly implement them all ourselves. So our focus is on getting a great platform for other people to start building applications on. Anywhere where storage is useful, the R-Chain is <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> Particularly, you know, permanent storage, that's mm. the thing that it really offers that did not exist previously.
1: So did you start out by thinking that it was going to be all about archiving the web and then kind of realise the greater implications midway through?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah. okay. There was a bit of a dawning realisation over yeah, time. Yeah, we were like, but, uh, uh, wait a
3: second.
4: <laughs> so we've made permanent storage for the internet, what about... <laughs> permanent storage for other things. <laughs> yeah, precisely.
1: Mm-hmm. Are you planning on doing backups of existing archives?
4: So we we thought about this. And one of the things... Yes, you certainly could. It's a case of cost, mostly. Um, But also, you can do stuff like simply make an archive and then put a hash of that Mm. onto the network. And then, well, you can't necessarily store that data or you you don't necessarily guarantee recall of that data. What you do do is verify or guarantee that you can verify later that that data can be shown to be exactly as it was on XY date. Ah. However, we've also... Discussed putting on things like uh, the Hansards and mm. Uh, mm. the human genome, things like mm. that. Potentially a uh, text copy of Wikipedia. Mm.
1: Right. Excellent. Yeah. <clears throat> a copy
4: of 1984. Of
3: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think we want that to to Genesis. Yes. Uh,
1: yes. <laughs> that thing about that you were talking about uh, referencing the hash. That's uh, the proof of access technology, right? It,
4: this is off-chain data um, support essentially. So we can really, really cheaply store hashes. We're essentially, the people are going to be charged per byte of storage. Mm-hmm. By storing a hash of the data, again, you can't you can't uh, verify that it'll always be available in the future, but what you can do is make sure that if you have that data, you can go back to that block and you say, yeah, look, I have this data, it matches this hash, it's unchanged from X mm-hmm. and Y date. That's the critical part. But we noticed, um, actually from reading Hyperledger's paper, mm. which is an IBM blockchain as a platform system. It, they, they claim that you can do storage on it, but, but when Can't we actually really. dug into the details, all it was was this, uh, you store a hash on the chain, and then you can, yeah, and then you store the data in a network attached storage system and recall it later, which we thought was, it's just not well. It's not uh, the same thing. No, it's not, it's not storage thing. on a blockchain. Isn't it
1: essentially centralized then?
4: In some ways, yeah.
1: And so the proof of access that you've built, that's something totally new?
3: As far as we're aware, yeah. The hashing part of it has obviously been around
1: for a long time. Yeah, so, so proof of
4: access is sort of a system layered on top of a typical proof of work system. So underneath it, you still take part in a hashing competition, but you only take part in that hashing competition among nodes that have access to the recall block. And the net effect of that is that the difficulty of the hashing competition lowers, which means that the effect on the environment of doing all that hashing lowers too.
3: Mm, it's and a it, real problem, like, Bitcoin yeah, is using oh, yeah, uh, like a small country's worth of electricity. Yeah, uh, and not even a smaller country. Yeah, not even that small anymore, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's Texas a couple of years ago, I don't even know, I wouldn't even want to consider what it would be these days. I think it was, um, I might be wrong, but something around the level
4: of Taiwan. Yeah. It,
3: I mean, yeah,
2: it was it was extreme. Extreme. it's pretty and Ethereum insane. No, Vitalik was saying something about um, Ethereum is the size of Ireland or something. Yeah, really,
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah so, so anyway, these proof-of-work algorithms are very expensive on electricity, and we are very happy that we have a way of getting around this as the network scales. Mm.
1: Well, so yeah, some you our... you guys have something where you only, you know, it, it, the, the block weave is a lot more efficient because you don't have to mine the full thing, but also there was some, uh, like, green cryptocurrency things going on, like where They wouldn't bypass the fact that you had to mine the entire blockchain. Uh, They would just kind of use wind farms and solar things. And uh, that doesn't seem like it's going to catch on and be that sustainable. So it's awesome.
3: Interesting
4: way to do it. Yeah, Um, it's hard to do
3: proof of work with a, you know, wind turbine. (laughs) Well, it is. How do you verify the wind turbine? Can I come in with with a big coal generator and just beat everybody?
1: (laughs) Well, that's interesting. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Anyway, anyway. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But yeah, the the block-weave efficiency thing is actually really appealing, something that I hadn't even thought about,
0: as far mm. as energy well,
4: efficiency goes. Yeah, you, you offset some of the difficult work from energy-consuming hashing to storage, which is very, very low energy. Extremely low energy, in fact. Ooh, you could even do magnetic tape or something. And, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> if you really wanted to. And the nice thing about this system is that it's, it's not actually proof of storage, it's proof of access. So it, the data can be stored wherever you like. As long as you can access it, then you can take part in the hashing competition. That, that it's not. So we've seen some systems that are based on literal proof of storage, where there's a, a duplication and they keep track of the number of uh, redundant copies in the network and people are paid for holding them. People are paid for holding them over time as well. You have to prove that you have it every time step. Uh-huh, it's, uh, I see. And but with our system what we really care about is that the data is simply available still and incentivizing people to keep that data available
3: mm. and the the system of incentives means that there's all even if all of the storage starts become if the storage ever starts becoming centralized and people mm. start using like storage pools or something then then your incentive as an individual to break out of the storage pool and then mm. store it on your own becomes higher and higher and higher mm. because the number of replications mm. of the block in the
4: network decreases so if that block is lost, say, by the storage pool there's in a higher, yeah fire, yeah, then, then you're going to be one of the only people left on the network with the block, which means that you get to compete in an extremely small pool of uh, miners, meaning that you can... Um, guaranteed the, guarantee well, the they're guarantee reward. Well, not guaranteed the reward, but you, there's a very high likelihood you get the reward. So there's this self-organizing, layer to the network where everybody is incentivized to store blocks that everybody else doesn't have
1: so it's even it's even uh, protected against being centralized
4: yes yeah absolutely the incentives are organized such that centralization is well it's unprofitable yeah yeah it's unprofitable and if things become centralized the um, the incentive for other people to decentralize it again becomes greater and that's just a pure financial incentive. Mm-hmm. Which we, we really like the way that the system um we call it incentive engineering. We've we've built it such that the the uh selfish behavior for each individual
3: player in the network does the things that we want the network to do. It's the best case of everybody. Everybody behaves yeah, exactly. as selfishly as they can and it still does the best result for the network overall
0: thank you for listening to this episode. As one of our more tech-based conversations, please remember to visit secretcave.co forward slash rchain for some more information and context. Make sure to like or subscribe if you've enjoyed this chat and come back next week for my much more light-hearted talk with Reese from Goldie Looking Chain, where we discuss the merits of IKEA meatballs and their new album. Thank you again and bye for now.